1: It is Punk Rock Month here at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Marcus in the Darkest, and alongside Ray Coob, we decided to add a few production pieces to the original Clash episode that we didn't use the first time it aired. So thank you again for listening, and here we go. Hey, Ray.
0: Yo, Marcus, what's going on?
1: I think we need to uh, jump into the Imbalance Time Machine, head to Nassau Grand Bahamas in the summer of 1985. What? Yep. We're going to start at the end and then work our way back to the beginning. Midsummer 1985, Nassau, Grand Bahamas. Mick Jones, his girlfriend, Daisy Lawrence, and their baby girl, Lauren Estelle, are chilling on vacation. He had just completed working on the debut of Big Audio Dynamite with Tina Weymouth and others, and up rolls Joe Strummer on a moped with an ounce of weed to try to patch (laughs) things up and reboot The Clash without Bernie Rhodes. Needless to say, things didn't go so well for Joe. At that moment, they realized that their partnership was completely over, this time for sure.
0: And that... I never heard that story before, so... I think that's a great spot to start, right? At the very, very end of the Clash? At the very end, but they still had recorded
1: Cut the Crap with Mick's replacements, and Bernie and Joe had written that record. They still released it in November, but in between that time, Joe was hoping to reunite with Mick, scrap that record, and reboot the Clash, but at that point, Mick had done Big Audio Dynamite, he had done General Public, and he was like, nope, I'm moving on. And I think what had happened... And then we'll get back to that point at some point. What had happened really hurt Mick badly. And I think Joe knew how bad he fucked up and... It ended I'll this stick band. to
0: my original point, which is so it's a story about the very end of the clash, because whatever happens after that, obviously you just put it in context for me and I'm sure for other fans, because you're looking at this thing, you're looking at the end of it. I mean, he had already moved on. And the way we all looked at it as fans was we had to decide whether we liked what the clash was doing now and what we liked what big audio dynamite was. Getting to that point, we didn't understand that there was this last-ditch effort by Strummer to patch things up and move forward and cut the crap. Is this as much as we can talk about it? We've gotten it out of the way because I... I think it's, you know, not even really a clash record in my view. It's not a class record in my
1: view either, but we will briefly mention it at the end of the story. But now that we have enjoyed the island life on Bahamas, it's time to jump back into the uh, imbalance time machine and head back into like 1975, 1976. The 101ers, Joe Strummer's band is playing. The Sex
0: Pistols open up for them so the pistols opened for the 101ers which is Joe's band from before the clash
1: yes and there was an aspect of hip. I didn't people. know that that's cool that night changed their life because everybody had heard and Bernie Rhodes was actually managing the sex pistols at that time Malcolm McLaren was over in the United States trying to fix up what was left of the New York Dolls and trying to help them get out of their rut after their successful run before they fell apart so Bernie wanted to see Joe Strummer because Keith Levine was like, this is the guy we need. This is the guy we need. And they had had a guy and we'll talk about the uh, lineup shortly, but they went to go see Joe. Joe was blown away by the Sex Pistols. That performance by the Sex Pistols, while it wasn't the greatest performance, it was the attitude and it changed Joe Strummer's world completely. He was bitten by the punk bug at that moment. Then Bernie Rhodes invited him to a seedy hotel to meet the rest of the guys in the band and propose his idea.
0: No, the rest of the guys in the band, which band? The Clash? The Clash, yes. No, The Clash. okay.
1: So this is how The Clash formed. And what happened was is Joe and Bernie went to the uh, hotel room to meet Mick, Keith Levine, Paul Simonon, and Terry Chimes. Yeah, because Topper joined afterwards. That's right.
0: At that point, Terry was still in the band.
1: Yeah, Terry was still in the band. And so they were all talking, and Joe wasn't quite sure about the guys, but he said their attitude is what he noticed and they had the right attitude and at that moment he started to feel that the 101ers were over and then after that Keith Levine invited Joe over to his house to play in his studio which was his closet and Keith ended up playing the 101ers tunes and a bunch of other music better that's than what they
0: had better yeah, than they played he, what they had yeah
1: well he played Joe's music better than anybody in his band played it and so at that moment Joe was like I need to be with these guys and he dismantled the 101ers and then told them he would join the Clash and then they formed and then they started practicing and playing together.
0: Now I never heard the 101ers really but I could tell you what I've read is they had kind of a rockabilly flair and you don't really see much of that in the music of the Clash even though Joe had a little bit of that flair for himself.
1: Yeah Joe was very influenced by the Chicago blues, Chicago rock and roll sound as well as rockabilly and some of the old country music as well. Very influenced by the blues and all of that but at that moment, he also knew that rhythm and blues rock and roll was dead because as we get into that time period, we know there was a lot of tension in London at that time, yeah. which we need to talk about. I was 10, you were a couple years older, so our perspectives are very much different. I just know that there was a lot of high unemployment. The Cold War fallout was really, really bottoming out. You know, there were millions of angry youth. They were bored. They were out of work. They were drunk. They were high. They were pissed at the system. Yeah. And Yes. They, and for as much as they loved the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Zeppelin and all those guys, they got tired of their excess and their phoniness and that was part of the ethos of punk that was developing based on what they had seen from the other side of the pond.
0: Those bands you just kind of ran down were the royalty of rock and roll in Great Britain. They were the ones to be taken down. They were part of the system that we now understand about knighthood and all the things that go with that and the fact of the matter is is they weren't wrong to have that attitude even though they were built on the foundation and a lot of the building blocks of rock and roll that those very bands put out there the sounds that they put out there that inspired them to move forward and fueled by the discord in their country it was not exactly like that here there was a youth attitude problem because it was the generation gap going on there it was what the pistols wrote about and what Got bands like The Clash lived, which was no hope, no future and a general finger in the air to everything of authority, even the dear queen.
1: And Johnny Rotten was firmly a believer, and this is the big difference between The Clash and the uh, Sex Pistols. Johnny Rotten and The Sex Pistols was no future, no hope. We're right. all fucked. And Joe Strummer and The Clash were the future is unwritten. We're pissed and we're going to make change, but we can make the change and the future is unwritten. And that Two was...
0: bands that took a different path with the ideology behind it, Johnny Johnny and the Pistols, No Future, and became Apathy, where thinking bands like The Clash would say there is a way to change things. That would lead to them embracing a lot of ideologies that weren't always popular in the free world and all that when they get down towards the 80s and Sandinista. But here at the beginning, they were feeling that punk spark we've talked about so much. And it kind of pulled them together and congealed them, and it hardened them, I think, a little bit.
1: Absolutely. And they got rave reviews in the very beginning. Now, before we introduce the band and talk about those early days, you're listening to the imbalanced history of rock and
0: roll. It is Marcus oh, in the Darkest. Oh, did we forget to say that? We, we oh forgot to say that. So. Well, at least we didn't make them wait for the good <laughs> stuff like some things I hear. You know, I also want to thank our sponsors, 1CBD. You can find out about their products at one and, of course, Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. Waiting to find out about reopening at the brew pub with the new stage and everything. is pretty cool. The cure for what ails you since 2014. And uh, we thank them both for their sponsorship here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's all about the clash, man. And they started uh, in, a, in a culture where recording singles and EPs was kind of uh, the, the norm. They started out doing a lot of sides, right? And yep. some of those sides you know, ended up being the ones that break them, turn them into a band that everybody wanted to get more of. But they also had a
1: different ethos than a lot of the punk bands where they wanted to do something different with every record. They wanted their sound to evolve and grow and get bigger. And you can actually thank Mick Jones for that. Mick Jones was by far the most talented member of that band. He did almost all of the production. He came up with a lot of the arrangement ideas, the music. Joe Strummer was mainly the lyricist, but he really was the player in putting all that together. And he was actually known in the club scene as being a really good guitar player at the time when he was uh, rolling through town and making his name for himself when uh, Bernie Rhodes had the idea of getting them together so Joe was known as a great frontman. Mick was known as a great guitar player Paul was coming up as a bass player they had uh, Terry Chimes who was labeled as Tory Crimes to piss off the government on the debut Clash Mm -hmm. record which is a fantastic name and if you know British politics it's an absolutely brilliant name but we should actually start by introducing the band including a few of the members that uh, didn't last with the band before Joe Strummer joined the band they had a vocalist named Billy Watts. The band figured and agreed that he was too much of a Jagger wannabe, and they were looking for somebody <laughs> to replace him. Obviously, their feeling about the excess of their heroes was getting to them. Their second drummer who replaced Terry Chimes right after he recorded the album and went on their opening tour with them was a guy named Rob Harper, who ended up also playing bass with Mark Knopfler in a band called the Cafe Racers, which became Dire Straits. He then joined a band called the Rockettes with a guy named William Brown. On vocals, Willie Broad became Billy oh, yeah. Idol.
0: Yeah, there you are.
1: And then he left the band, and then Terry Chimes, Tory Crimes came back into the band, which he ended up leaving. I'm calling him Tory
0: Crimes the rest of the podcast. That's totally fine. I'll call him, him that way, too. I love that
1: name. Keith Levine, the guy who was really the guy who fully convinced Joe Strummer to join The Clash, left The Clash before they recorded their debut album. He got tired of the really heavy politics of Joe Strummer, and he really didn't agree with the agit-pop access or side of Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and the band so he was like screw this and then he ended up forming Public Image Limited with Johnny Lydon until heroin took over and he was the big composer on all of that music and if you listen to his early style The Edge was influenced by Keith Levine all the stuff I went down learning about during these rabbit holes was unbelievable Terry Chimes the drummer who we mentioned (laughs) I know dude Let me get him out I know.
0: Give me the hook I'll get him out Ah!
1: Tory Crimes was born July 5th in Stepney, London, England. He was the original drummer with The Clash in 76, 77, and then for two years in an 82 and 83 after uh, Topper Headon was uh, removed from the band because his heroin problem got so bad. He also drummed with Black Sabbath and Hanoi Rocks. And then you have the four that everybody knew. Plus, we have the antagonist. Nicky Topperhead, born in 55 in London, drummed for The Clash from 77 to 82, kicked out for heroin addiction. By far of all the drummers Mm. for The Clash, the best. He was a jazz-influenced drummer. He really, really played well. He He, made it swing, lad. Yeah, and he recorded with them from Give Him Enough Rope to Combat Rock. And after he left the class to support his heroin habit, he was busking music in the London Underground. He was a busker. Pretty crazy. And then Uh he said this this it has taken Joe's death to make me realize just how big the clash were we were a political band and Joe was the one who wrote the lyrics Joe was one of the truest guys you could ever meet if he said I am behind you then you knew he meant it a hundred percent
0: you I always like what his part of the clash was what he brought to it the good drummer yeah. is
1: so important in the sound of a band you can't have a good band without a good Great drummer. You just can't do it. And then next, the guy who actually came up with the name for the clash, Paul Gustav Simonen, born December of 1955 in Thornton Heath, Croydon, Surrey, England. He came up with the name. He was influenced by the Jamaican sounds, did an album with a band called Havana 3AM, Reach the Rock was their big single. Gary Myrick and Nigel Dixon were in that trio and is also in a band called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen with Damon Alborn, Fella Cootie, Tony Allen, and Simon Tong, all musicians that are well-known in the British scene. And again, he came up with the name The Clash by look, he was looking through all the headlines and reading the newspaper, and he said the word Clash kept showing up in the headlines. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. He thought that it would work as a name for a band because it was ambiguous and powerful, just like the Who's name. Very simple, powerful, and ambiguous.
0: Jumping back to Topper for a second, one of the things I read in wasn't that surprised to learn was that one of his main influences as a player was Billy Cobham who fused rock and jazz as well as anyone on any instrument in in my lifetime. And it was interesting because that brings in kind of a a different thought to what he was bringing to the table and what he was capable of that we certainly see more in the later records, not so much at the very beginning where it was a lot more punk-based. But that's something about Topper that I didn't know before. And one of those little quirky things that we find out along along the way. There's a situation where he played with a band which opened for The Temptations, and he admitted to falsely claiming that he had played with them. And I don't know why you would do that, but it was one of those quirky little factoids that popped up.
1: And the final two, some people called these guys the John and Paul of punk rock, the Mick and Keith of punk rock. We'll start with Michael Jeffrey Jones, Mick Jones, born in 55 in Wandsworth, London, England. Before The Clash, he was following around Mott the Hoople and the New York Dolls, following them all over London, watching them play. He was in a band, a glam band called The Delinquents, and then he became known with The Delinquents for his guitar work around London. And then he formed this proto-punk band called London SS with a guy named Tony James, who also ended up co-founding Generation X, Sisters of Mercy, and Sig Sig Sputnik. So he played with some good people. then he was, uh, Mick Jones was also a founding member of General Public and Big Audio Dynamite.
0: The guy is incredibly talented. I've enjoyed all his work at every phase and his role in The Clash. I mean, everything you look at, when you go and you look at attributions and stuff, when it comes down, everybody does what they do, but they almost always indicate that Joe and Mick were both singers. Co-singers is the way it's listed in a lot of places. Not unlike other groups where they become great singers together. There was a point, especially early in the clash, where it wasn't easy to tell who was singing what when. And that's part of, I think, part of made that sound and made it grab me when I first heard it about a year, year and a half in.
1: Did you hear anything off the debut album before you heard Give Them Enough Rope? Because I know only a couple of songs from the debut album were were being played on college radio and alternative radio, but the album had not been released in the U.S. until after Give Them Enough Rope was released. So unless you were able to get a European bootleg or a British bootleg, you didn't have it, which you may have gotten from some of the great record stores you went to back in those days. You
0: want me to answer your question or not? Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> (laughs) It's funny because you went a long way to get an answer you're not going to expect. My discovery of The Clash really starts with a visit back to Kutztown State to visit my old college radio station, which had gone through a remodeling at the time. And when I went back, I went to see the station, looked great, and they had set everything up. It was like the old pockmarked walls before that, you know, and now they had carpeted studios and everything like that. So anyway, so I go back to visit, and they're going to let me go on the air for a little while and I see some records sitting there, and I go, what's this? And it was actually both Clash albums, so it was probably in 78 when this happened, and I was doing non-com radio, but I hadn't caught on to the Clash, really. I'd heard their take on I Fought the Law, but I hadn't really caught on. And they started talking to me, uh, my buddy Dan started talking to me about the Clash and what you know what was going on with them, that this was the first record, which we just got, but we have been playing this one. And that's kind of where I first heard about it. And then, of course, you know me. In those days, that was Freeform. You're on your old college station. I threw on cuts from both and started to develop an immediate liking for some of the stuff that I heard on both of those records. That's kind of how I jumped in. So, 78-ish.
1: Older Friends and Babysitters turned me on to those first two records, like 78, and then London Calling, it was completely on. And we'll get to the album shortly, but our final member of the Clash, before we introduce the antagonist, antihero, John Graham Meller, born in Ankara, Turkey August 21st, 1952 his father Indian, his mother Highland Scottish, his father a diplomat so he lived all over the world and then at one point he and his brother were sent to boarding school where they both became very estranged from their parents due to the fact that they only saw their parents once a year and Joe was really pissed that his parents basically dropped them off at boarding school and disappeared and his brother became withdrawn. In 1970 his brother completed suicide in some park and he had been there for three days before his body was found and Joe being the only family member that was there had to identify the body he never talked about it but that completely impacted him and we've mentioned this in other episodes Ray childhood parenting makes a difference
0: and traumatic things happening to you in your childhood make a difference sometimes it fuels things and you just gave everybody a nice view of where Joe Strummer came from and where he has been you know the fact that he had a more of a global view of things, having seen more than Rotten, who had just seen London and this sucks and all that. So maybe those two differences in those guys has a lot to do with the differences in the band
1: Definitely a big difference. I mean, if you think about it, John Lydon was poor, grew up very poor, white working class in London. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Whereas Joe was middle class diplomat, and that's part of the reason why Johnny Rotten did not like Joe, is he called him a poser, saying that he didn't really live it. Here he is screaming for the working people, blah blah blah. I'm just telling you.
0: I know, but fuck that. Okay, I agree. I agree. Okay, all right. Well, you're putting it out there, and I'm going to say why. Okay, I'll give you the reason why that's bullshit. Because Strummer's view was fueled by understanding of people, being multicultural, multiracial and himself, and understanding all these things in a way that some mutt like Leiden from the West End could never grasp. And that fuels misunderstanding generation after generation. People are angry at or don't like the people that they've never met or don't understand. And that is in a large way why I think that Mick and Joe had a different view that fueled a different direction for their band that actually made them succeed over the long haul versus what happened with the Pistols.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the fact that Joe actually cared so much for the human beings around him and in this world made him very different and very special. He will not deny, and it cannot be denied that fame and ego definitely at some point took over because you see it, and we'll go over that as we get later into the band, but after all of this happened, he ended up going to art school because that's where people who didn't want Jobs went in mid 70s <laughs> London where he started playing in bands he was busking a lot to make money in those early days and to go, especially once he dropped out of art school because he had done some crazy stuff and then he formed some bands including the 101ers which they were more soul and blues and you know that kind of a feel to him, and he wrote this beautiful song called keys to your heart which is really nice Come on! As the 101-ers, and it was really a good song, and I can see why it did really well in the club scene in England that time. But then, of course, he joined the Clash, and the rest, you know, is history. They ended up co-writing the album... Mick and uh, Joe, and they ended up putting it together in the CBS studios, and boom.
0: And that's really where we should probably stop up and head to Crooked Eye for a cold one, and then get ready to talk about the nitty-gritty, the music. The music is what we love, Marcus. It made us think. It made us feel when you can get a kid to do both of those things while loving your music you're on to something and it, it, the feeling part is easy when you're a teenager yeah, right totally i was i was you know just coming out of that i was a late teen into my and i really really latched on to them uh, with london calling which i can't wait to talk about as we continue our conversation about the clash on the imbalance history of rock and roll next oh the thirst You can feel it building as we're doing the first half of an episode, but, man, I really need this pint in my hand that is brewed by Jeffrey in the back room right there at the brewery at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. I know you love your favorite brews there too, buddy.
1: Absolutely. Which uh, pint do you have in your hand? I'm holding a pint of the Burrow Blonde, which is a nice
0: cream. Oh, that's really good. It's a nice, lighter-tasting beer. I like the ESB, the Extra Special Bitters, uh, because of my affinity for it, and I've rarely found anything that even remotely is like the British bitters I originally fell in love with, other than what Jeff brews there at Crooked Eye.
1: Some good beers at Crooked Eye. Another one to check out if you like ales is the Golden Eye. It's a clean ale, man. It is so nice.
0: There's all kinds of flavors and all kinds of things, ciders and all kinds of beverages for you right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro. And now there's good news for you, Marcus, and all our friends in Delco.
1: Really? What's this good news you speak of, Ray?
0: As things are reopening, Jamie's House of Music, not far from you in Lansdowne, is now the home of Crooked Eye in
1: Delco. So that means I can go there and grab a growler of their beer?
0: Anytime they're open for a show and they're pouring, you can go to 32 South Lansdowne Avenue right there, not far from you, and stop by Jamie's House of Music to check out all the brews that are on tap and available from Crooked Eye. And the uh, website is crookedeyebrewery.com a great place, a local place that you can take with you. So take some with you wherever you go and spread the crooked eye love like we try to do here on the podcast.
2: and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're gonna ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So What are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order. Plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon.
1: All we are back. We are having clashing beers. Mine's a dark one. His is a light one.
0: Actually, I got me bidders working. That's the way it is. So maybe that.
1: Since we're uh, having clashing beers, we're going to continue to talk about the clash. And <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible segue by Marcus. Thank you. <laughs> oh, <No>, that's clever. <laughs> Ba-doom-ba. Ba-doom-ba. <laughs> But in all seriousness, the importance of The Clash, which we've talked about a little bit, and we I think we both have some mind-blowing uh, facts ahead that we both learned digging into all of this, but uh, the importance of The Clash is gigantic. Their early reviews of The Clash were far greater than the reviews of the Sex Pistols who they were competing with and often went out and toured together with, but the Sex Pistols were able to create chaos and insanity much better than The Clash were two very different Different kinds of punks and two very different kind of punk scenes, attitudes and sounds, like the first review of the clash by Carolyn Coons, who was a prominent journalist in London in the underground scene in the 70s. Their live show was pitched like rockets, a fine visionary rock band with a wild style. Their humor and spontaneity. The clash taking the stage was like an injection of electricity into the smoky air. That was Chris Needs from Zigzag also. So that says a lot about them before. Before they got signed
0: sad to say one of the great sorrows of my rock and roll life is that I never got to see the clash live at any stage any level the one real chance I guess I had was probably JFK Stadium and for some reason I couldn't go that day and that's the way it goes in rock and roll sometimes I want to talk to you about something that I learned I guess this real revelation that came to me when I texted you the other day about this has to do with the first two records the first clash record when i first heard it i like some of the songs on there certain songs jumped out at me as very strong "Janie jones london's burning i'm so bored with the usa stuff like that okay and of course i mentioned earlier when i heard their version of i fought the law i went okay something here i like this this is really good now this is you know probably before that moment at wksc up at kutztown when I went back and hung out with my old college radio guys. Now, the thing that I realized that really made me go, what? It's the production on Give Him Enough Rope that makes the difference between the first and second records. And when I flip over the album, produced by Sandy Perlman.
1: Yes, that's Sandy Perlman
0: that Sandy Palman and I just had no idea and to think that my entire jump on point and you're gonna find the next thing I tell you even more crazy but to find that my jump on point where I really started to get this band is produced by a guy who produced blue oyster cult and it was a svengali in his own way you know writer and all that stuff i had no idea and the even stranger thing is that on piano on julie's been working for the drug squad it's alan lanier from blue oyster cult who is uncredited on the original album but noted on the wikipedia thing i was checking out now that's a what
1: that is totally a what moment but that album is really It's funny that you mentioned that because I think that's where Mick Jones learned the most about producing a record because he ended up producing London Calling after that as well as Sandinista. I know The Clash get credit for it and other people get credit for it, but Mick did most of that work on those albums. But I think that's where he learned the most about producing a record was from Sandy Perlman on Give Him Enough Rope. And
0: And another case on our imbalanced history here where we have an unusual connection between a rock band of the early mid-70s that was huge arena rock and a band that epitomizes the punk ethos in The Clash through Sandy Perlman and a little Alan Lanier thrown in there, too. Yeah, definitely. And and the songs, again, the songs on that record, Give Him Enough Rope, really stand out. Like Safe European Home, I I was listening the other day and I went, wow, I forgot how much I love this fucking song.
1: Seriously, the album just punches you right in the fucking head with that song opening, and then they do their British version of... uh, when Johnny comes marching home, the English Civil War, and then they go into Tommy Gunn, and then Julie's been working drug on the drug squad.
0: Time, yep. man. Come on. They're all really good well, songs.
1: No oh, I was actually talking about Drug Stabbing Time. What a great tune. I listened to that yesterday and was like, I holy did too. cow. We're
0: such girlfriends.
1: I know we are totally (laughs) girlfriends. But seriously, that album is fantastic, and it shows a big jump in skill. My feeling about the Clash debut record, though, is as a younger kid, it was definitely more of a "Hey, what the hell is this?" and I really like it. "White Man in Hammersmith Palais" still my favorite of all the Clash songs to this day. White Riot.
0: On that, because it wasn't on the original issue. How did you hear that?
1: A friend of mine who was a couple years older went to this uh, record store. Denver called Watch Tracks and got a European import of the Clash because he had heard I Fought the Law, one of those songs from somebody right. and, he uh, and knew. And White Man
0: in Hammersmith Ballet
1: yep. was on that. Yep. Yeah. So that's how I heard that one. And I, I still love that and, you know, one. Police and you know, Thieves is incredible, was too. The thing going on
0: here in the Philadelphia area, I know at least, and, and some of them listen to the podcast, I know at least a half a dozen or more people who were buying from those same indie stores that your friend got that disc from in Philly and Jersey and all throughout the Philadelphia area. And there's a bunch of people sitting there right now. Shiva Gakko's nodding her head, going, yes, with her hand in the air because there's a, and she's just one of at least 10 or 15 people I know who that's where they learned about all these bands and a lot of the music that they were even turning us on to
1: think about it all those little rags you used to see those little paper roll printed magazines that were in all of those record stores and then you had the German the Japanese and the British imports on vinyl and those three were the three that we used to get imported that weren't made in America at Wax Tracks in Denver which was also the big Wax Track studio record store that was big uh-huh. with ministry in Chicago so those two were tied together but yeah that was the big record store in Denver and that's where I got all that clash and Adam and the Ants my German pressing of uh, Dirk Wears White Sox which I think there are only 10 or 15 thousand of and in fact Adam Ant was in another band and he saw the Sex Pistols at that 101ers show and immediately really? quit his band and was influenced by the punk ethos and ended up with Adam and the Ants with the guys who ended up forming Bow Wow Wow and this whole it's crazy all these bands that are tied together and we'll talk about all of that. But the Clash debut record, I really like as well. But yeah, Give him Enough Rope is a big, it's a heavier hitter, and it shows the evolving of the sound. And then after that tour, Bernie Rhodes, the antihero, was forced out of the band. They were sick of him. He was creating tension. He left the band. And then he ended up beating him up within the tabloids and really talking a
0: lot of shit on him. Well, it looked like they were evolving. And guys like Bernie or Mickey Foote, who produced the first record, and other people in the- their camp were falling behind and not keeping up where these guys wanted to go and they learned stuff from Sandy Perlman when they went in the studio to do London Calling uh, they went in with a guy named Guy Stevens who I didn't know much about he started out as a club DJ playing cool like stacks and Motown records and he attracted a following including members of the uh, Royal Circle, <laughs> the Who and the Faces and the Yardbirds and the Stones and the Beatles too so he kind of made a name and kinda, you know started to build his reputation right? He kind of broke into the business compiling and making notes for reissues and compilations of American records, a lot of like uh, American blues records like Muddy and, and Helen and Wolf. And then he got to run Sue Records for Chris Blackwell of Island Records fame. He introduced lyricist Keith Reed to keyboardist Gary Brooker, and therefore they became the Paramounts and then turned into Procol Harum, who we've been talking about. And Whoa. I've been hearing a lot of other people talking about just what we were talking about in the Moody Blues episode, where we met. Mentioned Procol Harum, Whoa. But he encouraged those guys to write together. You could probably do something. He said it kind of started at a party, uh, something about a friend had turned a whiter shade of pale, and that was the inspiration for the lyrics that became the song. You know, Whoa. these things do happen that way.
1: The ties between all these bands and all these genres are absolutely mind-blowing when you really get into the nitty-gritty of it, Ray. It's insane.
0: So he helps there, and he helps them to come up with their name, and he also comes up with the name for another band. that he was working with that were called Silence. Now that's a hell of a name for a band in the middle of all this loud stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I guess they figured Moth the Hoople might be a better way to go. (laughs) And this is Guy Stevens The guy who produced this record That we idolized I don't know about you I idolized this record Me too You know when Rolling Stone Mm -hmm. Made it the number one record Of the 1980s I was pissed off Because I never liked to agree With Rolling Stone that much And they were right
1: They were totally right once Rolling
0: Stone Really got it right It is an amazing record The fellas came in Their bellies are full They're ready to go They've got so many great songs They probably have a great atmosphere to make the record in and away they go
1: three weeks they recorded it they just hammered down in the studio busted it out in three weeks they knew that without Bernie things were gonna be different and they wanted to
0: prove why do it. you think that is what was it that he was such uh,
1: he was I mean, a control freak he was um... a control freak even more so than Joe and he had much more hand in the direction of the band and what was going to be a hit what was not going to be a hit plus he was also the guy who wanted to be a member of the Clash and knew the only way he could do it is by creating divide between Joe and Mick
0: so he was a dick
1: he was totally a dick Bernie uh, exited the band they ended up writing the music and then recording it all in three weeks and think about this in a way, Ray. Right? London calling in sort of a way was the nail in the coffin for punk rock as we knew it at that point. The 12-year run was over. Starting with the MC5 in 67 and in December 15th, punk rock as we know it ended. And think about this, and this is the rabbit hole I went down. The last six months of 1979, leading up to the release of London Calling, some of the albums, and you have at least half of these albums in your album collection or did at one point. The Kids Are All Right, I Am, By Earth, Wind, and Fire, Labor of Lust, Nick Lowe, Repeat When Necessary, Dave Edmonds, Get the Knack, Candy O, Mingus, Communique, Live Killers, Unknown Pleasures, Night Owl by Jerry Rafferty, Robert Palmer's Secrets, Mirrors by Blue Oyster Colt, The yep. B 52's Low Budget, yep. Nine Lives, hey Highway man, to nine Hell, nine. John Cougar, his debut, Rainbow Down to Earth. Devo, Duty Now for the Future, Risqué by Chic, Fear of Music. Where are we going here? This is just the last six months. Just listen to, and I can't wait to tell you where we're going. Off the Wall, Michael Jackson, Chicago 13, XTC, Dylan, In Through the Outdoor, The Rose. I mean, you have Born Again by Randy Newman, Van Morrison, Volcano, The Slits, Susie, Three... Joe's Garage Axe albums by Zappa, Dream Police, Gary Newman's Pleasure Principle, Unleashed in the East, Judas Priest, The Raven by The Stranglers, Gang of Four Entertainment, U2's pre-boy EP3 came out in 1979, The Long Run, The Buzzcocks, Wire, Regatta de Blanc, Tusk, Blondie, Rick James, Sticks Cornerstone, Madness, The Specials, Prince, Cabaret Voltaire, Motorhead's Bomber, Midnight Oil, April Wine, Molly Hatchet, Toto, Saga, Whitesnake, The Human League, The Damned, Status Quo, Iron Maiden. I mean, look at all these albums. Degueo came out, and then December 14th, London Calling was released on the world look at the directions rock and roll was going with that list of albums just in that last six months. We both have at least half of those albums in our collection. That's how big that time was. And it just shows where rock and roll was branching off to at that point. Look at the insanity of all those albums. They're all very good albums.
0: When you look at it that way, with that list all in front of you, you realize what a fertile period it was Uh, at the end of the 70s, Mm -hmm. per se, here at the end of 79. I think you could probably segment out several periods in the 70s and 60s where you're going to find that same kind of level. Yeah. But what you're looking at there, all personal fringe interests aside, is pretty heady stuff. Yeah. And against that backdrop of all different kinds of music out there, all different kinds of level of success and in, mm-hmm. in, in familiarity to the general public out yeah. there, yep. you drop in this new Clash record. And you know what I always loved was the fact that they didn't list the song they released as quote-unquote the single to rock radio train in vain wasn't listed on the album and you had to go find it when you got the album initially you know wasn't real clear what was going on there until of course we got Rolling Stone or one of the cream or one of the other magazines that kind of explained what was going on there but yeah. it was an exciting time to like this band from London that you didn't really know that well yet you thought you did but you didn't really know that well and over the next few years that would change in a big way oh a huge way
1: and if you uh, think about it with that death of punk as we knew it you had goth you had ska, you had alternative you had new wave you had um hardcore brewing up in the underbelly so punk wasn't dead like everybody was saying it was just evolving and changing and we still had the burst for hardcore on the way and that would come down the line but yeah then after the success of a london calling
0: in a lot of ways the same thing happened with punk rock that happened with other rock and roll forms at different periods of time elvis and, the ro- and Chuck Berry and the rock and roll of the 50s the British invasion the American response you have things they explode and there's all this music and it's all kind of generally lumped together even though you and I know and we've all learned together that it's not quite the case what happened was things splintered out and there became different little flavors that's why Jones ends up doing st- something like General Public which is way different from The Clash in a way even though they're running parallel there but they're not really touching you know not much anyway yep. but that's when I think happens there and it happened to all different forms of rock and roll things explode and then they splinter out and then different things develop it is an evolution truly
1: so they found a lot of success they blew up all over the world with london calling people were all over the clash and that's when things really started building up as far as tension goes but they still wanted to record and they had a grand idea and it really upset the record company and that idea was Recording and releasing three albums for the price of one. Three albums for the price of
2: one.
0: Well, it is putting your socialist values where your money is. But um, <laughs> I'm sure the gang at, at CBS Records weren't crazy about the idea for Sandinista. But I think you're jumping ahead too much because I want to talk a little bit about the music that was London Calling. Because, you know, we just kind of mentioned Train in Vain, and, of course, the title track's a big one, Marcus. But I got to tell you the things that, for me personally, being the right age when that record came out, the impact of songs like Brand New Cadillac and Rudy Can't Fail, those two songs right there are amongst my favorite artists songs period right Spanish Bombs lost in the supermarket working for the clampdown when that song came, when that song mm-hmm. came out I was working for the fucking clampdown whoa I was wearing blue and brown mother were you really I was in this factory job man I was right in the middle of it so my last six months of 79 were very different than yours as a as a teenager mm-hmm. I was already a working guy and this record spoke to me songs like wrong and Boyo, oh, death mm-hmm. or glory I love the whole riff death or glory is my favorite Coca-Cola changing the name but using their slogan you know you can get away with those things the right profile wrong and boy oh, did i mention that twice i did yep. didn't i what about the card kind sheet? of
1: songs i mean those what? deep cuts what about songs like oh. card cheat and, so- and solitary man cuts. i mean and like go, all of them
0: oh they're all these are all deep tracks to most people except for people who are hardcore fans and there's hardly a song on that record that doesn't warrant listening at any time it comes up in in rotation and that's why I, i've been listening to it repeatedly the last week or so as we've been getting ready and I just didn't want to jump ahead too quickly because in my mind it's the attitude and all that but it's beyond punk rock and it's one of the main records that takes the entire genre of alternative music from that punk rock explosion beyond it and then gives it a lot of different places to play not only with Big Audio Dynamite which Mick would go on and do and, and General Public but there's two perfect examples Public Image Limited's another one but we're there right as the whole thing is blossoming in And exploding. And then they come up with this great idea, which is going to be so cost efficient to the suits, right? With Sandinista. Yeah. I don't know how they pulled it off.
1: They pulled it off because they were going to pull it off. Oh, and by the way, one other factoid about London Calling, it was released on the day of my bar mitzvah. Mazel tov. Thank you. So maybe that's the big connection with that album for me. But yeah, you're right, dude. Sandinista, an interesting record. I find it to be a little bit of a clusterfuck of a record because I think it could have been a really brilliant single album. I think it could have also oh, been a very good it double been, album. No, yes. But it, it's definitely a muddled, screw-the-system track triple album and it's got a lot of good songs but they used all the extra songs that they wrote that weren't wouldn't be part of an album
0: here's what i think happened okay And this is a guy who bought it the day it came out because i had to and listened to it a lot especially for a long while now it's relearned a lot about the songs that i do and don't love on that record from listening to it this week on spotify I'll admit that. I'm listening to remind me of what I'd listened to all those years ago, off the of vinyl, which is in the wall upstairs, you know, it's here but, core songs that, you know everyone kind of knows from those days when they were played on the radio Magnificent Seven, Somebody Got Murdered right? Washington Things, Bullets right? Yeah, people played that, I guess Alternative played that but Hitsville UK with Ellen Foley The Call Up, Police On My Back These songs were kind of pretty well known, but then you've got your other favorites, I like The Call Up, I don't, I like Charlie Don't Surf, you know, Lightning Strikes Not Once But Twice. I like these songs a lot, but what I think you say, part of it is the Mikey Dread influence. Part of it is where Mick was going to go next with Big Audio Dynamite. Listen to the last two sides of Sandinista with this in mind. He was already working on his new direction, but he was doing it inside the context of the Clash and on the dime of the label. The funny part is then Big Audio Dynamite ends up on Clash Columbia right? Ironic. I know but that's what I'm saying it was kind of part of that process and again another step in the evolution of these talented guys who gave us so much great music.
1: Oh there's no doubt about it and it's funny you mentioned that because Mick was definitely very influenced by the New York hip hop scene at that time and very into that New York hip hop scene and he wanted to move the clash towards that direction whereas Joe and Paul wanted to move it more into a rockabilly direction, which is where Joe and the uh, Mescaleros ended up. So you see two front men pulling apart, going in different directions, but can they continue this magic of keeping these two different styles together?
0: The irony is that that's the atmosphere heading into combat rock, was they are heading in to make combat rock, and the other side of that is that it would become their most commercially successful record, give them their most enduring songs as far as radio play and all that stuff. And they were not doing so well internally and they were having all this great commercial success. And I'll give you my two cents, but that's where they were coming into Combat Rock, right?
1: It was. They had, for years, the Clash had been trashing the excess and the phoniness of their mentors and of their predecessors predecessors in the rock and roll family, and here they are living it now, and so I know that that was a conflict within Joe Strummer. There's no doubt about it. That was a personal conflict within Joe Strummer. So
0: it's kind of ironic that that's the backdrop for them going going into production for what would become Combat Rock. And they go in with uh, Glenn Johns, another different producer, right? Also a guy who had commercial success. And against the backdrop of all that, you know, not exactly harmonious coexistence in there, they go in and produce their most commercially successful record. It's got songs that are still on the radio all these years later. And yet it starts to really be the point where they pull apart,
1: right? Though they're very much pulling apart because to get back into the studio to record Combat Rock, Joe told the rest of the band that they needed to rehire Bernie. And he said, if you don't allow us to rehire Bernie Rhodes, I'm quitting the band. Oh, so he He, pulled a dick move. He totally pulled a dick move. And they ended up recording combat rock. You can hear the New York hip hop influences. You can hear some of the rockabilly, some of the Americana type of influences as well in it. And they recorded a lot of it at Electric Ladyland in New York City over a long period of time. It was one of the studios. They hung at.
0: You know, I know it's what it is as far as rock records and what it means in The Clash and their whole career, and I hope it doesn't keep us from getting Glynn to be a guest on the podcast, you know, but the only really great song on that record is Know Your Rights. And the rest of it's just okay to me. And that's the end of the clash for me, to be honest with you. I know that there's the hotel thing that mm-hmm. happens while they're getting ready to make Cut the Crap and all that. I mean, as a fan, that's when, after that, when I heard everything that was going on and then I heard Big Audio Dynamite, I'm like, okay, I'm in on that because that's really cool. And I heard the crap and I didn't really like it.
1: Oh, I didn't like Cut the Crap at all. And yeah, the Combat Rock Time was absolutely insane. Topper got fired. Yeah. And the reason he got fired originally, they were going to do the cool thing and say yeah he just needs a rest he's exhausted but his heroin habit had gotten so out of hand that they ended up sacking him and Joe was like yeah we're sacking him because he's a junkie and so Joe pulled another dick move and Topper was bitter for a long time until after Joe passed and I understand that I mean he could have held true to his word and said you know get yourself together and we'll put you back in the band but he didn't then Mick got sacked and Joe kind of did it in a dick way as well just one night told Mick I don't want to play with you anymore
0: and that's why he made the move to go to see him and try to make a last-ditch effort to fix it, because he knew he broke something that didn't need to be broken, that it was his fault. People are looking for fault, and they often do. I see that creative forces often come to loggerheads, but this feels like a little bit more than that. It feels almost like a power struggle, and I don't think Jones was that into all that stuff. He always seemed like a still seems like a super chill dude.
1: Yeah, he's totally a chill guy. He, uh, He was
0: like, nah, that's cool. You do your thing, man. I'm going to go over here and do this other thing. And, uh, you know, and other guys came in. They can say they were in The Clash, but not in my book and not in a lot of people's books. I don't care what Wikipedia says. And I will love them always for what they are in my heart and what they are in the hearts of millions of other people who love them. And look, it's from people who are younger than you to people who are older than me. It's a lot of Clash fans that just always love the band. Yes,
1: absolutely. They always love the band. How can you not love the band i mean they're incredible the way they changed the way they continued to relate and that was one of the strengths of the clash is joe strummer saying every word like he meant every single word and mick did too but there was a special feels coming out of joe's voice and a special passion that came out of his uh, throat
0: even the punkiest attitude that any of them have had to love the fact that they got to be themselves in a moment in a Scorsese movie because of basically of the popularity of combat rock, right? They were in the king of comedy in 83, just, you know, cameo walk by, you know, or a passing thing. So Mm -hmm. they were in demand. They were in vogue and we're arguably a pop band at that point, which is hard to believe you could put pop band and Clash in the same sentence, but there you have it. And that's kind of where they became most endurably popular for one of a better term. You're absolutely right.
1: That's where they evolved and again, Joe said some interesting things along the way, like he loved the Ramones first album, didn't like the Ramones second album because it sounded exactly like the first album, and he said I didn't even listen to the third album because I knew what it would sound like. And he said it bumped me out because I thought the Ramones first album was incredible they just needed to grow with that
0: some are growers some are showers absolutely
1: and (laughs) I I don't knock the Ramones for what they did at all because I think their albums and their sound is fantastic and I love them for who they are and for who they represent no problems here with the Ramones I love the Ramones and the great thing is is in their punk attitude you can hear all of the music influences the dubstep the ska the reggae the rhythm and blues the uh, rockabilly you hear it
0: all the neat thing about especially Actually, London Calling and Sandinista, what it did was it was like a two-way door for me between different musical genres. I'd hear things out there and then be able to relate them to things I heard on those albums. In a lot of ways, some of the sounds and ideas, especially on Sandinista that I heard musically, for me, it was the first time I really like got lost in it when I was listening to what you could call dub music, you know, yeah. and understanding the concept of dubs and how DJs would do the dub thing in clubs and all that. And they took their thing, I think, to the furthest length that they could and then became a pop band just to show that they could. Maybe. I don't know. But I don't dislike them for it. Mm -mm. And I don't hold it against them, even though it's not my favorite. You know what's going to surprise you? This is what I've been waiting to tell you. All right. The general philosophy is especially for somebody who was the right age in 1979. That's me especially. That London Calling is easily your best, most favorite Clash album, no matter pretty much who you are, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I discovered in the last two weeks while we are getting ready to do this? What? That my favorite Clash album is really Give Them Enough Rope.
1: I can't argue with you on that because I've been tinkering with that one as well because of the way it hit you at the beginning. Seriously, I kid you not. I was looking at it. No, I hear you. I'm tinkering between that one. For as much as I love London Calling. Give Them Enough Rope really marks a transition and is really an early death knell to the end of punk and the uh, break-offs of the family trees in 78, Oh, stop being 79, so I heavy, know.
0: Morris. We're just but, having fun.
1: Okay, you're right. But still, it's amazing. It is. Safe European Home just pummels you right at the beginning yeah, of the great. record. And, and
0: Julie, man, I forgot how hot Julie's song... You know, and you the know, key you keyboards hear the songs on there the time, are just you know? great.
1: The keys are just <laughs> great and the boogie-woogie and find sound. Out
0: that it's Alan from Blue Oyster called, oh my God. And a couple There's other the things we have here on the Imbalanced history of rock and roll. Speaking of give Them Enough Rope," it
1: never got past number two in England. Do you know what album kept it out of the number one spot? Please do tell. "Grease" the soundtrack.
0: What?
1: Exactly, dude. But "Grease" was huge. I still have that album, and it's a great album too. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, whatever.
1: It's a great movie soundtrack. Can't argue with that. I'd say a great movie soundtrack. I'm not
0: arguing at all. I'm just not saying anything. Fair <laughs> My enough. My mom said, if you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all.
1: Hum. But... <laughs> Some of the things that I learned, like, for example, the rivalry between the Sex Pistols and the Clash is pretty fascinating. Well, between Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer is pretty uh, fascinating because Mick and Paul didn't give a shit. They're like, yeah, they're not our competition. We're better.
0: (laughs) I always find it humorous to see that people care. Because really, the, most of the things that people find out are always exaggerated by a comment made in the press. And of course, unless, of course, Johnny Lydon's involved, because he, I think he purposely tries to stir the shit. Even more, even if the shit is flying all over the room, he'll try to stir it just a little more. Yep. And he's not the only one who's in that camp in the punk, you know, universe. Mm-hmm. So to expect that some of it would get on the Clash would be normal, then, wouldn't it?
1: Joe was able to stir shit up too, but he didn't do it in the violent, angry, anarchist—the not in the anarchistic way that the Sex Pistols did. They were pure hedonistic anarchy, and that was the ethos of punk that they followed. But Joe was definitely much more stand up for your and stand up for yourself but not in the hedonistic way that uh what's his name uh, Johnny Rotten was so. Pretty fascinating he- stuff. Is that
0: what it was? I thought he was an anarchist.
1: Well, he was an anarchist. A he- yeah, he was more of an anarchist, but he was hedonistic in his anarchy. He was, like, full fucking chaos, and he still does it when he says some of the things that he does. I mean, you see here, some of the things that he comes out with every once in a while, you're like, oh, come I on, do. Johnny, you can do better. You know, Rebecca-
0: I'm watching that series Punk, and I'm in the middle of it, and he is in a lot of it, and so I got a full dose of Johnny Lydon circa one year ago, and- <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah. change that much. That's all, Not I'm at say. all.
1: There are a couple of good books about The Clash. Martin Popoff, who's on the Pantheon Podcast Network, did a yes, song. Is. He wrote a book called The Clash All the Albums, All the Songs, and it is fantastic. It is a great look. Cool at The Clash. Hold on. Also, there's another book that I've been uh, reading called The Clash Book, and it's done by Gary J. Juca, and it's got some great information about The Clash as well. There's a documentary called The Future is Unwritten. There's their version of the great rock and roll swindle called Rude Boy, which is uh, Bernie Rhodes' attempt at being Malcolm McLaren, because he was super competitive with Malcolm even though they worked together. They still were very competitive and at times very nasty to each other, so pretty Fascinating the whole punk scene, and really, British punk is founded, and the godfather is Bernie Rhodes.
0: What you just he, stunned me there. And
1: he, I mean, if you think about it, he was the one who was really responsible for making a lot of that happen because when all the craziness happened, Malcolm McLaren was in New York with the New York Dolls. So
0: Didn't we talk about this? Yeah, that was at
1: the beginning. So think about that. At the end of the day, The Clash, not a very long run, but a very productive run because of how they impacted music, how they changed music, and how today it can still be felt and the relevance of this band today.
0: I feel it all the time, man. I am so glad we've done this and had the the time this week uh, getting ready for it, which is kind of fun for us anytime. And of course, we always want to hear from you, by the way, uh, you were asked. Asking for stars. I saw a lot of stars out there. People rating us, especially on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your reviews. You're very kind. And keep them coming because we need some feedback. Now there's a way you can give us direct feedback. That's our email address. It's imbalance history at gmail.com. Just send us a note. Don't worry. We're not we'll only talk about you on the podcast if you know <laughs> if you want us to. But the fact of the matter is there's other ways. Our Facebook page, Imbalance History of Rock and Roll on Facebook and the Twitter account. Which which is very active these days, at Imbalance Histo. You can't get the R-Y if you're going to be on Twitter, but you can find us there at Imbalance Histo on Twitter. So, you okay now? I'm you great. You get it all out? You get oh, all your I'm so great, love yeah. out to the world? Totally. I know, I'm feeling great, man. Know, I'm glad feel, we did
1: this. Me too.
0: And I hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks for checking us out here live from the Dark Doc Studios on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time we crack the mic to do The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.
1: It is Punk Rock Month here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Marcus in the Darkest, and alongside Ray Kube we thank you for listening to this episode of The Clash. And next week, we have a brand new episode for you on The Stooges. So get ready to get dirty with the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And again, thank you so much for listening.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.